Welcome to the UMC Lead Podcast. I am on today with the Reverend Andy Maddock and with James Kang. Andy and James were part of our first ever lead conversation at the first ever lead conference. And it's a conversation that caused uh, quite a stir and it was one of the most memorable moments from the 2012 lead conference. Uh, but before we get into it and start uh, rehashing that, um, I'll have them introduce your, introduce themselves. So, uh, um, Andy, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, Andy Maddock, um, where I was in 2012, uh, I was entering or in the middle of what was my second year uh, as the lead pastor of the Methodist Church in Simi Valley. Uh, now, five years later, I'm in the midst of my seventh year. Uh, at Simi Valley. Same appointment, same context, ever-changing world. Um, it is a, a suburban bedroom community in Southern California uh, where we serve a membership base of about 400 with about 210 to 220 in worship uh, regularly now um, and uh, continue to uh, enjoy living out my call in ministry here. James, uh, feel free to introduce yourself. Tell us uh, where you were in 2012, what you were up to, and uh, what you're doing today. Well, in 2012, I think that I was in young adult ministry in a local church in Southern California, and today I'm the Director of Communications for the California Pacific Conference of the United Methodist Church. Today, I'm also traveling over 70 miles per hour on the freeway, and that's why my voice doesn't sound as good as Pastor Andy's, but that's the only reason. Yes, well, we would let um, we'd have to conduct an online poll, I think, among people who know you both to say who really <laughs> has who really has the best voice. But I don't know, Andy's Andy's voice is pretty awesome. All right, um, let's jump right into it. Uh, would one of you guys uh, maybe recap sort of what your talk uh, was about, and then maybe uh, each of you could go separately and. Uh, offer, give a summary of what your position, each person's position was. Any takers? Um, I, I guess I can provide the context. I, I don't know that I'd, I'd introduce James's uh, position on his behalf since he's on the line, but, um, you know, the the questions that we were asked in 2012 uh, in terms of the, the prospectus that, you know, we kind of went into the, the talks with was, you know, how do you, how do you see the church uh, what's what is the problem with church proper? How did we get here? What's some of the history for that, and and where do we go from here? Um, and I know from my place, uh, I named and confessed the idea that uh, you know, as James and I, we had the chance to have lunch together today, and the way I described it is, hey, I, I realize that I'm I'm trying to have this whole conversation from inside the box. You know, when we talk about outside the box thinking, you know, my world is is uh, very much the familiar pattern to many within Methodism as it stands now. It's a predominantly Anglo, although multi-ethnic church. You know, um, you know, we use the hymnals, you know, and we have a very classic traditional feel. So, you know, it was uh, confessing that, you know, my experience of the church is, is rather staid um, and, uh, and traditional in that regard. And so um, I, I talked about the idea that, uh, you know, our our struggles and our foibles were as much a matter of perspective as they were uh, performance, and that uh, there's likely um, clues and hopes and possibilities within our tradition and within our structure uh, that can help nurse us 
uh, out of you know whatever struggles we find ourselves in the midst of, be it decline, be it uh, denominational integrity, be it difference of opinion. Uh, that um, the idea is not to you know uh, break down the 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 Lego creation into component pieces and just start rebuilding with what we have, but to say okay. We live into a structure. It, it's been, you know, viable, viable and vital at different points in our history, um, and that uh, it, it might serve as as the means to a new end, um, but that it would take a, a lot of work and a, and a change in perspective, um, and and ultimately, you know, the spirit's nudging uh, for us is basically the idea that you know our Wesleyan history provides us uh, some means to to move forward even in times of of doubt and struggle. So. Cool. Thank you. Uh, James, uh, where, what angle were you coming from or are you still coming from? Right. So in, in 2012, my take on where the church was at and is going, uh, was that it, the numbers were clear that what we were doing and how we defined Christian discipleship and what it is that we say that we offer to the world was not working. It, I mean, at that point, was not working, and today I want to offer some reflections on that as well, but was not working. It was and is working for a certain group of people, but for the vast majority of the United States of America, it's not working. And so... My point was that as as the numbers, not just my opinion, but as the numbers was showing us this, the next step, the solution then is not uh, a, a mere improvement of what we were doing, but to think of our need to start over. And not start over in the sense that everything needs to be broken and uh, everything needs to go away, but the starting of new things needs to be the primary focus. That was my basic point. So five years later, uh, where do you guys where do you guys stand on on those positions? Uh, would you say you're in the same place? Have things changed? Have you completely uh, reversed uh, where you are? Um, let's hear about that conversation from Buffalo Wild Wings. Uh, I think we decided well, that James was right. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. Uh, no, I, I think one of the things that, that, uh, we talked about and that I, I was able to confess is that, you know, with, with time comes perspective. Um, and, uh, with, with seven years here at the, the church that I've been serving, um, in its own unique context, I, I, I'm beginning to see some of the through line that James is describing, uh, as a desperate need for our church, uh, in no small part because where where I'm serving, you know, there there's a, a a high level of of anxiety about what the future holds for the United Methodist Church, um, uh, particularly with uh, questions of division around conversations about sexuality, about uh, our our common resources, and what it truly means to be a connectional church. Um, and uh, you know, we're 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 living into a pattern where. Um, not unlike a lot of Methodist churches, we are we are trying to do so much more with an ever diminishing capability to do that good work. Be it a, a deficit of resources or the age of a congregation, you know, we we are in that pattern and process that so many churches have gone through about figuring out what God has in store for us next. 
Um, and uh, the the thing that that you know James kind of put his finger on that was helpful for me is, um, you know, not only do you have to figure out what what has worked, uh, but you have to be willing to confess that we are living into a world that is changing so rapidly uh, that you likely need to find something altogether new um, that that the spirit's going to give life to and energy to. Uh, that matches, you know, the needs of a of a very diverse, very different world from even where we were, you know, five years ago and a decade ago. Uh, the the way I tried to articulate it at lunch was, you know, it, let's imagine a world where I was blessed to stay in this appointment for, you know, another 30 years. Um, the one thing I know at this side of this conversation would be the ministry that this church did and that was expected of me in an ever-changing world would change so much in each decade of that 30-year process that it's almost hard for me to imagine what that would look like 30 years from now. Uh, because if the church is going to be real and relevant in the lives of people, um, we're, we're living into an ever-changing world, and ultimately one that I don't know that we should be frightened of, uh, but that we need to figure out how to be faithfully engaged in. Uh, so that was, that was kind of one, one of my takeaways and a, a bit about where I am more now. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm reflecting. Uh, I, I want to say, first of all, thank you to uh, Rob Reinders for opening up this space. And I was telling Rob the other day when when I got the when I got the text, like, oh my God, this is what I had been actually hoping to do. But I didn't want to be one of those desperate people and ask to be a speaker or whatever. Not that all, all those who ask to be a speaker are desperate people, but I myself did not want to do that. And then so uh I want to I want to make clear first of all that I have absolutely no animosity or negative feelings at all towards Pastor Andy and I also don't have anything against what anyone is doing in ministry anywhere <laughs> in the United Methodist Church I really do not I don't have anything against that what I have is this experience of feeling like much of what I see is not for me, and I know for sure that it's not for a lot of people that I know who are outside of the four walls of our church. And I think about what I was uh, feeling and thinking and, and my conclusion in 2012 that if you look at the numbers, that it looks to be like we are heading towards a point where one day some church out there will close its doors and it will be the last doors to close in the last church in the denomination. I think that I said something to that effect. And I realize now that I was wrong about that, but I was wrong about that because uh, if we don't really pay attention and focus, we're heading towards something even worse. And what's worse than a denomination closing, I think, is if a church actually stays open but stays not totally relevant to the people that it purports to minister to. And I see all around me denominations um, uh, that will not be named, but I think if you think a little bit, you can identify who it is that I'm talking about. Uh, who are older, who are, for the for the most part, Anglo, and uh, have a lot of buildings. These are denominations that are still around. 
that are still around. But for the most part, you don't see uh, them making such great impact amongst younger people or young families, for that matter, or are becoming um, uh, really integral to the everyday lives of everyday people in the United States of America. And so what that tells me is that the trajectory of the United Methodist Church might be the same uh, unless we really focus on being able to uh, minister to different people. I, I, I think the numbers, the other numbers to think about is the fact that our United Methodist Church is over 90% Anglo in the United States. And this is a uh, this is this is an amazing statistic. Uh, you might think about what it feels like for a neighborhood to be ninety over ninety percent white, uh, for a for a store to have only over ninety percent white people, and so on and so forth. It's it's not the the anyway. So when we think about it this way, we really do need to focus on ministering to new people in new ways. And um, that is clearly evident in the work that I do. It's uh, obviously uh, evident to to what people are experiencing uh, across, I think, the, the connectional system. Cool. Thank you both for, for that. Um, I guess I have, it's a, a question for each of you, but maybe I think it'd be interesting to hear you, both of your responses to both questions. Um, so my first one would be uh, for Andy, and then maybe I'll ask James to to respond. Um, what are the? I think we've both we've all agreed that that change, at least some change, is necessary moving forward, and and um, uh, in such a way that in thirty years, uh, you know, we can't even begin to describe what um what the church would look like as Andy said but what are what are some of the non-negotiables what are what are the things that that are are must haves or must keeps uh for United Methodists uh great question um i uh would oh uh, just off the cuff uh affirm a couple of things um one would be um a wesleyan understanding of of how grace works um you know we we can't become so cloistered as to say that god's grace isn't active and available in the world outside our doors um we we can't uh uh divorce ourselves from the pattern that our 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 drive and call to you know social justice and mercy is rooted not just in the sense of we know what's best for the world and can save it, but that it's rooted in the idea that we are all children of God, um, and uh, you know that that's a, a key component for me uh, because I think it's a, a, a part of our skin in the game when it comes to you know interdenominational or, or even interfaith conversations. You know uh, this kind of bold claim that that God's at work in all of our stories, and that's what makes grace you know so deep and profound. Um, and then you know I'd, I'd, I'll just lay a you know an, an interesting caveat out here um i i think that you know that for methodism to continue in some way shape or form um you know requires uh intentional communities and and for me that would involve worship um at the heart of that i think there are plenty of uh ministry centers there are plenty of nonprofits there are plenty of social justice networks and things that do uh, so many of the community outreach things that we lay claim to well, 
um, you know, there there has to come a time where um, you know the 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 heart care that that happens in a in a in a vital worshiping community needs to continue to be a part of that. Um, you know, so looking ahead to alternatives to what that looks like, you know, that's that's the exciting work that every church does. I, you know, I'm not arguing for a type of worship or anything else. Um, but, you know, for me, it would be difficult to draw the line that, you know, says, hey, you know, we can, you know, we can be the quote-unquote church, you know, just out there in the community, absent from a place, absent from a people, um, you know, uh, that, that there has to, at some level, be it house churches, be it networks of people gathering together, people coming together for that uh, kind of spiritual intensity piece. Uh, that's a, that's another uh, keeper for me. Cool, James. What are what are your non negotiables when it comes to the United Methodist Church, well, or do you have uh, any? <laughs> so um, i I have trouble with this question, mostly because uh, mostly because I think that the United Methodist Church and what we call it. Is a is a dynamic entity that really can be essentialized into one thing or another. And the other thing is that its its dynamic nature is a result of the fact that over time it has gone through a, a many many processes of change theologically, ecclesiologically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I mean, for for practical reasons, what I'll say is that I really appreciate the um, the uh, apostolic, our, our theology of apostolic leadership and the fact that people are sent. And I think, I think that is something that as, as we want to make progress uh, that we literally need to keep the belief that people are sent. Um, and they might be sent to a place not to create a spiritual colony uh, or, or, or the expansion of some kind of a, a religious empire, but that people are sent to kind of be embedded and be a part of a particular community and to represent kind of that seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is that is one thing that I would focus on. What's one thing each of you would change uh, tomorrow, if you could, um, to move the church in the, in the direction you believe God uh is calling uh, the church to well at the at the risk of complicating my own professional life. One of the things that I named at lunch today um, was, you know, um, in part with the conversation we came around to was kind of the tenured uh, structures of the appointment process, um, and at times the, the 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 burden that puts on local churches. You know, we're in a setting. I'm in a setting right now where. Fixed staff costs, not just clergy, but the people who help make this church work, you know, are about 60% of our budget. Um, uh, and we tie up a lot of the, the stewardship resources of faithfully giving people into paying for professionals in ministry. Um, and there is likely a lion's share of the, the work that the pros are doing in the life of our church 
um, that if, you know, under James' model of, of, of equipped and sent, you know, people with gifts who might not be ordained, you know, um, you know, can help facilitate that a little better. But, um, you know, there's a, you know, a, a hierarchical, patriarchal uh, structure of, of, of appointment, of tenure, of respect, responsibility, austerity um, that uh, we've settled into in the, you know, uh, you know, 300 years of the life of this thing called Methodism, you know, where where we are we are absolutely shackled by we we bear the the yoke of um, our our administrative emphasis and focus, um, and I think that comes at the expense of movement of spirit led energy of new possibilities when we you know are so rooted in that that uh, system. I I. I I suppose I have trouble with every question you're gonna ask, but uh, to to be careful with this question, I would say that in general, as as the need to make progress and to focus on ministering in new ways to new people, uh, the way to do that is to first realize that we are in a condition of conditions. I mean, it's a it's a multifactorial. I don't even if I know if I'm using the right word, but uh, it, there's multiple factors at play as to why we are at where we are at. And so, um, in order to make progress, it's not necessarily one thing that we need to do or not do. It's actually a, a multitude of things that we need to do and not do. Um, but but I, I think. I think to kind of cheat on this question, I would I would say that one of the things that we need to realize is that our definition of Christian discipleship, uh, or the large part of which is to expect people to be able to take something home uh, as curriculum, study it, bring it back, and share their opinions on it on a Tuesday or Thursday night or Sunday morning or whatever is, in my mind, uh, based in a certain class of society and also a certain culture of society. Uh, For a people who have the leisure and the time to spend to open up some kind of curriculum and to reflect on it and to write down some notes and to come back on a weeknight, to be able to do that with others, uh, that expectation comes from certain presumptions about how life is. And it might be that way for certain people, but for those who are either busy parents or parents plus they have two jobs or three jobs and so on and so forth, that's not the kind of discipleship activity that's going to work. So our expectation um of people being able to do this with the label of the quote-unquote a value of education on it is something that in my mind needs to change today so that we could free our minds as to how to really define Christian discipleship for different people living different kinds of lives. Before I ask my my last hard question, just want to give either of you an opportunity to maybe ask a question or, or follow up or respond to anything that, that you've heard. And if not, that's, that's fine too. 
Well, I would ask James, uh, you know, on the, the kind of class-based, you know, model, you know, I, I wonder if there is not the place for um, a both-and relationship to understandings of discipleship rather than an either-or. Um, I think in the local church, we inevitably find uh, Bible studies and classes that are populated by the the same people all the time, not not because they're the ones who are doing it best or are most desperate for God's Word or even the most faithful of Christians. It's just a part of their pattern, hope, and expectation for what the church might do to meet their spiritual needs. And, you know, part of, you know, my thought is that, you know, what I hear in James is this kind of value assessment that says those are the right kinds of disciples that the church is looking for. And I I think rather that, you know, the, the church is called to to meet people in a, in a wide variety of ways, in a wide variety of spectrums, with a wide variety of capacities as a church. So I wonder, you know, what, what you know, his response to that assertion would be. Yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely that we need to have a both-and kind of an approach. I think, um, I think that in coming up with the both-and kind of approach, we have to be able to empower those who are not used to that. That's that's a train going by, but who are not used to that kind of um, discipleship or that. See, see how we define uh, Christian discipleship and living a life of meaning is different for people in different stratas of the socioeconomic system and the and the ethnic makeup of of our society. And so therefore let's have our activities just reflect that. And it doesn't mean that something else needs to go away. It's that maybe uh for those who have the time and uh see it almost as a recreational activity to reflect theologically to go into um the oh my gosh, the title is has escaped me now, but the red covered book by Paolo Frere that talks about pedagogy and the difference between the banking method of education and more of a praxis model of education that comes from different parts of of the socioeconomic uh stratus. So if we just take that approach, I absolutely think that as we have different kinds of things for different people, things will things will be better. I have another question for James. Yeah, please. Uh, just in terms of praxis, um, what what would your advice be to a pastor who wants to try that on uh, in the midst of a community where you might get a 90% return rate on people who say things are the way they are supposed to be here now? Because, you know, that might be true here. I don't know. We haven't asked that kind of question, but I can imagine there are plenty of churches where the status quo is so fiercely defended, um, and, and, and they would hear that conversation from you, James, and say, well, yeah, I mean, this church meets the exact context of me and mine and everybody who surrounds it, so why can't we have exactly that? What wisdom would you give to a pastor who wants to, to push that envelope to meet new people in the way that you're describing? Well, I think that is the question of the millennium, right? I mean, I'm, I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit. I have a tendency to do that. So whatever I say, just tone it down in your own mind and get the, the truthy part of it. Hyperbole but, is good for the soul. <laughs> yes, very much. The, um, 
That is the question because that is the question of, uh, in my mind, leadership and change leadership. And a, a lot of times our clergy person, not a lot of times, but pretty much our clergy person as a whole need to get used to this because in the apostolic leadership structure, people are sent to places that already have their own stories and we're coming in from the outside. And then we have to, uh, the book, The First 90 Days um, by Watkins is really, really good for that. For that. But, um, you know, I think the first place for a pastor to go to is in the Gospels uh, and to begin preaching about um, the fact that uh, the Messiah of the New Testament or whatever uh, was born from outside of the country. I mean, I'm using, a, you know, just contemporary summarizing terms, but was born outside of the country. Uh, it's a gospel that went to those who it was, quote-unquote, supposed to go to, and it's the gospel that went to those who it wasn't supposed to go to. And it's a gospel that uh, went to the people that uh, the people who thought that it was supposed to go to did not want for it to go to the other people that it was not supposed to go to. Right. So just using that term, you know, supposed to, and who gets to really make that decision, um, uh, that decision has already been made by God. You know, we're not here as a, uh, as a church uh, of our own. You know, we, don't, we didn't put God's brand name on our church. You know, it's God's church, and we're a part of that church. So when we're a part of that church, we don't have a choice as to who we serve. And it's not just supposed to be us. The other thing is that we really need to, in our theological understanding, counteract and overcome the capitalist under, transactional understanding of, uh, of how we interact with almost any entity uh, with which we have some kind of exchange of funds, right? So that's a really technical way of saying you know, just be, we're not paying to play. You know, just because we're a giver or we're a member uh, and just because we sit in some uh, committee as, and as a chair or not, not a chair, as a table, I guess, or whatever, you know, it doesn't give us the right to, uh, or the privilege or anything else, to reverse the movement of the gospel, which has always moved outwardly, and uh, and is and is grounded in in Jesus's own words and commandments, and for that matter, his own life. And and uh, and this is the kind of uh, belief, this underlying belief, that I'm a paying member, uh, almost to the point where people think that they have a religious subscription. They have like this monthly subscription that they're buying for religious goods and services. Mm -hmm. Religious goods and services is a term um, that, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm such an old man now, I'm forgetting everyone's names and books and things like that. Fatherhood does it's, that to you. It's a, yes, it's, an, it's a term that another, it's a concept that another person uh, uh, put together. Um, but we need to really counteract that. And I know that it, it doesn't mean that everything needs to break and everything needs to go away. Uh, but, you know, just look at the suffering that's happening out there and the very uh, need for our 
definition of discipleship to go beyond uh, recreational activity, which I find it to be too much sometimes. So, yeah. Um, Andy, did you want uh, to respond uh, quickly, or shall we move on to the final round? No, I, I think we can move on. I think James is real, real faithful in his answer, and I, I completely agree. Um, you know, we we certainly are ever uh, in the local churches, you know, dealing with that religious commerce conversation. Um, and the and the tricky thing, you know, the, the kind of argument from in the box thing is. For many um, of us in pastoral ministry, the, the problem is is that that conversation feels self-serving. Uh, you know, particularly in a context mm-hmm. where, you know, I mean, if you if you took Simi's budget, sixty percent is de- devoted to staffing and twelve percent is devoted to apportionments, and we've been faithful in both. So you're looking at twenty eight percent of our budget goes to the rest of the ministry that we do. You know, so you know the the argument that any discerning layperson can work is. All of these conversations about the needs of the community and the capacity to give and support and what 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 is going on with my buy-in to your system, uh, you know, is rooted in the self-interest of supporting the connectional church or those who staff the local church that you enjoy. You mm. know, and when that is going well, you know, uh, my friend Dave Lindsay, who's in the UCC system, just wrote an article, uh, you know, kind of addressing the question of what is good preaching. You know, because the Pew study that came out said that is the single, uh, you know, uh, with five other benchmarks, you know, that the, what seekers are looking for, you know, their first answer is good preaching. Well, you know, in a, in a, in a commerce system where we're trading the perceptions on a sermon uh, for the goods and support, you know, there's a whole lot of self-interest that, that I think, you know, that, uh, you know, James Remedy, an anecdote about the gospel message you know, of a Jesus who took, you know, that which was tiny and made it sufficient is a very different model than, you know, I'm going to keep preaching till we can feed 5,000, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I think he's, he's spot on, um, you know, in that regard to, to, to push us and to push our comfort level as, as uh, local church leaders. Wow. Well, thank you both. Um, I think as... Uh, I, I have one final question that we sort of end with for with everybody, but um, I have a feeling, as with your talk, which I think was was an hour, at least an hour, uh, it it felt like it was five minutes. And one of the biggest complaints we got in 2012 was should have given uh, James and Andy more time. Um, so uh, I I think that's how folks will feel um, uh, about this conversation. Um, which is good because you both are smart, interesting uh, guys, and I like having you around. So um, the final uh, question is, uh, where do each of you see the United Methodist Church in the next two to four years? Could I, could I start on this one, Pastor Andy? Absolutely. Okay. You're, you're the smart and interesting one. I just thought good. Yeah, uh, no, let's not start there. <laughs> I kid. Uh, I, um, I, I, since I didn't get to, I didn't really have any questions for Pastor Andy. I wanted to respond to the "what is good preaching" one real quick because I talk about that a lot. It's true. The new Pew study um, says that that's what visitors are looking for. Actually, in the California Pacific Conference, we did an internal study and found something really similar, but it wasn't statistically significant enough for me to make it a credible study. So we're going to do some more work on that. But I want to talk about what's good preaching for me. Very in one sentence, 
what's good preaching for me is if I enter into this worship space and a preacher is able to exegete my life. I'll say that one more time. If a preacher is able to exegete my life with the scriptures. And a lot of times the difference between what I just said and what I hear is that uh, is that of a focus on on the exegesis of a person's life versus the exegesis of uh, a scripture as something to be exegeted as a historical text with some kind of spiritual meaning. And what what I would hope is that our United Methodist churches and our clergy persons are able to take the super duper great, especially at Claremont School of Theology, of which I am an alum, uh, the biblical studies that we get from there, and the and the uh, systematic theology, and all the different kinds of theologies that we get, to begin to uh, see uh, see hermene- the hermeneutics of people, um, because that's when people are able to see how see the imminence of God. Uh, and then the transcendence of God, uh, when they see their own life being interpreted, right? And it and it's a and it's a guidance thing. And then that, so with that, just moving into the next two to four years, who knows, right? Because who knew that uh, what happened at General Conference happened? I mean, was going to happen? And even uh, in 2012, who knew that we would be where we are at right now? But what I would hope is that people are not necessarily gearing up for internal struggles, per se. People are gearing up to address the kinds of spiritual and material and other needs that are happening out there and to design ourselves to be able to respond to that. And and if we can do that, then we truly have a, a focus on uh, on ministering to new people in new ways. Uh, you're waiting on me. I think that's well oh, said. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, to to James's uh, point about preaching, you know, I, I I'm I'm a bit more artsy fartsy than my very articulate friend, and you know, I I I use a lot of visual imagery. And what I what I you know think James is describing in part is uh, what I consider for me that sense of weaving, uh, weaving one's story, my story, their story. Uh, into a sacred present and not just say, hey, this is the way it was, this is what historians have said, this is what critics have said, you know, uh, as a way to bring the text to them, but rather to find a way to weave our sense of community and our experience in that moment. You know, one of one of my favorite things is to find touchstone points within the service itself. Lyrics we've sung, something we just heard from the choir, an experience that's happened because a kid is crying, you know, and to use those as touchstone points uh, for what makes you know our work and worship together in that moment real and relevant, um, and so you know I, I think I, I really loved. I wrote it down. I'm gonna you know hang it on my computer screen here. Exegete my life with the scriptures, not just exegete the scriptures for me. Um, you know I think that's a powerful sentiment for for what we all need to do. Uh, for your podcast listeners, the context we're in right now in this conversation, we're about what six or eight weeks from the uh, election here. So assuming that the rapture doesn't happen on the 9th of November. Um, and uh, Jesus finally calls us all home instead of uh, you know new presidential administrations on no matter what stripe you are. You know when you talked about where are we going to be in two to four years, I think it's really no different than where a country is going to be in in about two to four months. Um, and that's with the the contention of the election cycle and the idea 
that you know it, it looks like at least half the country, uh, one way or another, isn't going to get what they want, and there are people who are going to be upset and disenfranchised and yet trying to live and be together, I, I think that's a very real possibility for our church, uh, be it the gathering of uh, you know conservatives in Chicago to respond to the actions of General Conference in the Western Jurisdiction, uh, or the bishops uh, gathering in the coming years to provide us some insights. I think in the next two to four years, you're going to continue to see pockets of disenfranchisement. People who say, the church that I knew is not the church I know, uh, or what we're supposed to be on one side or the other, um, and yet we're still going to have to figure out uh, if we can do church and how that's going to be. Um, you know, I, the 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 question that I think comes for me from the from the lead pattern, where you're talking about people who have a passion for leadership, uh, perhaps even ordained leadership within this uh, church structure uh, from a young age. Um, you know, these are these are people who are not second career folks who are leaning into a sense of perspective from another business life or anything else. These are people who've picked up that siren's call at a very young age and said, I think I have a place in this game, you know, and the the trick for, for anybody in the lead cycle now uh, would be, you know, one of the things that I think that's been true for me as I approach 40, and that's the church that I have inherited and now serve looks nothing like the church that built my passion when I was 14, 15, 16, 18, 22. Um, and that shift just in the last two decades, um, you know, uh, you know, puts that sense of, well, I felt my call, I felt that urgency, I felt that spirit's nudge from, and in the context of a church model that looked one way, I now serve and try and call and equip folks from a model that looks a little different, and then maybe two or four years from now, it looks all the more different. How do we continue to um, you know, go back to James's idea of the people that are sent, you know, that, that come from this from a a, a, a a divine aspiration who say it is not just I think this is the track for me or, you know, I think I might be good at, but those who feel this spiritual sense of urgency for leadership in the church, how do we continue to equip them not just to say serve the church you knew, but be bold about leading the church for where it needs to go? Um, and, uh, you know, I, there are a lot of things I'd wished I'd known then that I'm, I'm learning each day as I trip over my own shoelaces. Uh, and that, and, you know, as I look at the lead model and the strength that you're, 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 you're gifting, you know, to these people who are at, at, at powerful thresholds in their life, you know, that's, that's my big and abiding hope is to continue to find and, and equip and to strengthen the people who feel that sense of being sent. Awesome. Thank you. Um, very quick lightning bonus round question uh, for both of you. Uh, when you get up in the morning, uh, what are you excited about uh, right now? Well, I have a new puppy. Or... <laughs> Ooh. Are well, you that's not, not, that's not a ministry question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it, it can be anything. It can be anything. I, uh, I myself am uh, a, new, a new parent of a, of a creature that will be three years old next month. I will expand my answer, Rob, in, in the utmost faithfulness with a small anecdote. Yes, um, I think that as a pastor, there are seasons in life where it's okay to have your principal care, concern, passion, and energy not be the church, mm. um, and to be a faithful leader in church life, uh, but to not have the vampiric sense of, 
I need the church to exist and thrive so I can suck my life force from it. Um, you know, one of my big energies, I'm in my 40th year of life, I'll be 40 next fall, and I'm trying to figure out what good, solid midlife crisis I might have, but I've been turning that on its head for a, a good bit of self-care. So I'm looking forward to health and vitality and what comes next when I give my body what it needs to move ahead. And there have been times in my life where I felt like the church has wanted to stamp out that impulse. Uh, James's comment about his three-year-old, I think, is a beautiful one. Uh, when my wife and I were pregnant with our first child, uh, we were at a charge conference in Long Beach, um, and I was an associate and did not think I was going to have a speaking role uh, in that event. I was sitting out in the midst of the congregation, um, and uh, the uh, uh, this was late September, and Maddie was born at the end of October, so we were about a month away, and uh, all of a sudden, my senior pastor uh, turned to me and said, Andy, tell us something you're excited about. And my first answer was, well, we're about to have a baby, and that's exciting. Well, it turned out some, you know, self-important layperson went to my senior pastor shortly thereafter and said, Andy should have said something about his ministry and this church. Mm. You know, it was wrong that he was excited about his infant. And, you know, maybe after being at this just long enough, I, I wasn't wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, the the church can give life, but for those of us like James and myself, whatever form it takes, who are in leadership, who are a part of that life-giving enterprise, there have to be things that are beyond the structure of that, that are life-giving, that give excitement and energy, or you, you know, you get strung out on the rack. Um, and so that's a long answer to a lightning round question, but I wanted to affirm that a three-year-old is a great answer. So. Amen. Amen. I think that's a, a fantastic way uh, to end this conversation. Uh, thank you both for uh, your time, uh, for all that you do in ministry, and, and all that you do as uh, friends and, and family members. Um, uh, appreciate your work. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you, Rob, for having us, and thanks, James, for making the time both at lunch and now. Yeah. Of course. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Blessings uh, to you both and your families. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Bye-bye.